Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQBD in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, same-sex marriage was made legal in California in 2013. But in 2008, California voters banned gay marriage with the passage of Proposition 8 and ads like this. Teaching children about gay marriage will happen here unless we pass Proposition 8. Yes on 8. This hour, we look back on that day 15 years ago this month and reflect on how far LGBTQ plus rights have come and how far we've yet to go. We'll talk to one of the couples that sued to overturn the marriage ban. And we want to hear from you. What do you remember about the passage of Prop 8? Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Do you remember the night Proposition 8 passed, banning same-sex marriage in California? It was November 4, 2008. Californians had just elected Barack Obama president before taking away the right to marry that had been granted to gay and lesbian couples by the state Supreme Court just months earlier. For LGBTQ plus voters, it was political whiplash, writes KQED's Scott Schaefer, euphoria and despair in one night. Two couples sued to stop Prop 8. And one of those couples joins me now, Chris Perry and Sandra Steer. Welcome to Forum, Chris and Sandy. Thank you. So glad to have you both on. And also KQED Scott Schaefer is with us. Hey, Scott. Hey, Mina. So, Chris, I want to start with you. What do you remember from that night, the night that Prop 8 passed, where you were and, and how you felt? Sandy and I had a tradition of always watching election results together after work in our living room. And that year was no exception. We had some of our kids in and out of the living room doing homework and paying attention to other things. And we sat and watched with great joy as President Obama was elected. And it almost was an afterthought and almost hard to process that at the very same time in California, Proposition 8 passed. And we just had not really contemplated that being a reality. And even to this day, My memories are very much overwhelmed by the Obama victory and somewhat hard to track the uh, Prop 8 victory. So it was it was a mixed, uh, a mixed evening, very bittersweet and one that uh, uh, obviously led to a number of other things in our lives afterwards. Sydney, what stands out in your memory from that night? And did you expect Prop 8 to pass? 
You know, I, I really did not expect it to pass. I know in the lead up to the months before the election, there had been a lot of um, kind of, to me, it seemed like noise in the media, a lot of negative, uh, bigoted perspectives being shared. And, but they didn't feel real in terms of where we lived in, in the Bay Area in Berkeley, California. Um, and so it felt like while there was a lot of energy out there um, around Proposition 8, that it, it just seemed unlikely that it could possibly pass in our liberal state of California. Um, and of course, us living in the most liberal part of it. The night that it passed, it was such a bittersweet um, evening. We were so thrilled that Obama won, and we had been um, very excited about his campaign and his potential presidency, and so optimistic about what the future might hold. And one of our kids had just turned 18 and then for the first time got to vote. And I remember feeling so proud as I walked with him down to the voting booth near our, near our home. Um, and to have all of this happen just so quickly, the pride in the child that is turning into an adult, the excitement over this amazing new president, um, it, it just all was so uh, unfortunately tempered by that devastating uh, ruling on Proposition 8 that uh, we knew would really change the course of, of lives of Californians. Yeah, Scott, your your whiplash comment sounds very reflective of Chris and Sandy's experience. And you were covering the Prop 8 campaign from its beginnings to that day on November 4th. Remind us, who were the groups involved, how this came to be? Yeah, so it was a group called Protect Marriage, uh, which was the leading you know group behind it. But there was a lot of money from the Catholic Church and from the Mormon Church in Utah um, that really gave them the resources they needed to organize and to get their messages out. They had commercials on television, which actually became part of the trial to overturn it. I don't want to jump ahead too much, but um, and you know one of the lead fundraisers was. Um, uh, Cordelione, who is now the archbishop here in San Francisco. I believe he was in San Diego at the time. Um, and so I, the polling leading up to the election was very close. It was it tended to be behind, but not very far. And I remember uh, Mark DiCamillo, who was the pollster for the then field poll, saying, you know, this could go either way. And I think, you know, a lot of, you know, liberal folks and LGBT folks just didn't want to believe it because Obama was doing so well in the polling as well. Uh, but of course, on election night, it did squeak by uh, 52% yes, 48% no. And, you know, it was it, it was a shock. Um, but I was not Entirely surprised. I had been, as you said, covering the campaign, and I remember one uh, going up to Sacramento for a, a huge rally led by one of the big Christian churches up there. It was at the state capitol, and there were massive numbers of people there, um, and you could just mm. feel the energy uh, on that side of the yes campaign. And I think, um, you know, there was a lot of criticism of the no on eight campaign as well. We can go into that if you want. They didn't feature any LGBTQ couples in their ads. Um, there was a sense that they were trying to kind of, you know, make it more palatable to straight voters without really saying what was at stake. Um, and so, um, and, th and then that continued after the election. There was a lot of criticism of on all sides, and some people were even blaming uh, Obama voters. You know, they came out to vote for for Barack Obama, and then they voted yes on uh, on Proposition 8. Yeah, a lot of finger-pointing, some soul-searching, but yes, a lot of strong reactions to an unexpected result that leads to all kinds of theories, both good and bad. But ultimately, um, Sandy and Chris, you decide to take action. And I want to ask you, Sandy, about what made you want to, to file a lawsuit, to be part of it, to to, to stop Prop 8, to overturn the gay marriage ban? You know, thank you for that question, Mina. So 
you know, after Proposition 8 passed, we certainly felt like many other LGBT Californians that this is a travesty and it shouldn't have happened and, and, and kind of felt at odds of what to do next. We certainly realized that the political process did not work for us and as a minority group might not ever work for us. Um, but I don't think we had really contemplated a legal action ourselves. We were, in fact, the recipients and we were somebody reached out to us um, to let us know that there was a legal action um, in the works and asked us about um, possibly wanting to become plaintiffs in this in this case. So I would love to take credit for the brilliance that was this legal action. It was, in fact, not our idea, but we were sought out as, as uh, possible plaintiffs, as were the other couple, Jeff and Paul, who were our co-plaintiffs in the case. Right, right. There were four plaintiffs in the case, and the case went to trial in January of 2010. And Chris, I think you have said something about how you felt pressure at the trial's onset? Pressure from what? Pressure to do what? The the trial started with our testimony, the plaintiffs. And we were asked to tell our story in the most heartfelt, vulnerable way possible to convince the judge and um, maybe the public of, of what the harm of this law really was to us as a couple to illustrate what's happening to thousands of couples across the state. And as somebody who grew up in California and a conservative part of California, I, I didn't come out till I was 18. And I have never, even at the point we were preparing for trial, it had never occurred to me I would ever be equal, that I would ever be married, much less that I would have to go back and retrace the steps I'd been through to get to a point of even feeling like I could stand up for myself. So, that day we testified was heart-wrenching in the sense that I was worried that I would feel too vulnerable. I would feel too upset and too scared to testify effectively and help the team. But fortunately, the preparation ahead of time was, was I think I wasn't the first plaintiff <laughs> to prepare for trial. And they did a great job of helping me piece those those chapters together of my own life of feeling less than and then being able to describe how that impacted not only my adulthood, but even this pursuit of happiness through marriage. And we testified to that. I want to play a little bit of tape from the trial. And Chris, this is you responding to a question from your counsel, attorney Ted Olson. What is your relationship with plaintiff Sandra Steer? Um, well, Sandy is the woman I love, and uh, we live together in Berkeley. I remember the, the first time I met Sandy thinking she was maybe the sparkliest person I'd ever met, and, um, and I wanted to be her friend, and we were friends for a few years, and, and our friendship became more and more, um, it became deeper and deeper over time, and, and, and then after a few years, I, I began to feel that I might be falling in love with her. What's it like listening back to that, Chris? Uh, well, I, I was, I, I, I can't believe I said those things in, in <laughs> front of Judge Von Walker <laughs> um, and much less the, the courtroom, which was packed. And um, I'm proud of that moment because I, I was speaking my truth about how I felt about Sandy and, and unapologetically so and unequivocally so. And I think that was 
huge progress for me to not to not worry that it might offend someone if I told them I loved Sandy. Um, it felt it felt empowering. Yeah. What was it like for you, Sandy? Oh, it was um, such a, a, a sweet uh, moment in our lives. Um, it felt like something very private and personal was certainly being shared in in public and in this this legal setting. But um, just for me personally, I was just so touched by um, Chris's willingness to be so open in a public setting. It's sort of typically not her way. She's a fairly boundaried and reserved person in many parts of her life. Scott, you know, Chris and Sandy are talking about the personal sort of stakes, the vulnerability, but there was also a lot of worry about filing the lawsuit at all. And I'm just wondering if you could talk about why people viewed suing to overturn Prop 8 as a risk. Yeah, well, you know, this had gone, this was um, sued in, uh, there was a lawsuit in state court to try to overturn Prop 8, and the state Supreme Court, um, after just a few months or maybe a year by that time uh, earlier, saying there was a right for gay couples to get married, said that, you know, Prop 8, because it was a constitutional amendment, was you know, it was in fact valid. And so there was a concern that going into the federal courts, uh, where ultimately the Supreme Court, which, you know, is not always friendly to liberal uh, causes and issues, that if they filed this lawsuit in federal court and lost, that it could set back the the push for LGBT rights and same-sex marriage for decades. And that's what happened a a few decades earlier with uh, Bowers v. Hardwick in Georgia, where there was a lawsuit um, against anti-sodomy laws, and the Supreme Court upheld those laws. And it was another, I think, almost 20 years before the Lawrence case in Texas reversed that. And I think there was a concern, and it was from, you know, LGBTQ advocates, you know, and they later, you know, admitted that they were wrong. Uh, But there was a lot of concern that this was risky. It was a real roll of the dice, and they just weren't confident of the outcome. We're talking with senior editor for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk, Scott Schaefer. Also, Chris Perry and Sandy Steer, plaintiffs in Perry v. Schwarzenegger, uh, which became the case that overturned Proposition 8, California's same-sex marriage ban. And we're asking you, our listeners, to share your reflections of that time at 866-733-6786 by emailing forum at kqed.org or posting on our social channels at KQED Forum. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're looking back 15 years to the month on the passage of Proposition 8 when California voters voted to ban gay and lesbian marriage in the state. It was later ruled unconstitutional by federal courts, but you, our listeners, 
many of you lived through that time and are sharing your reflections on it. And uh, I want to read this one from Rick, who writes, Back in 2000, I voted on a statewide ballot initiative that said marriage is just between one man and one woman. Fast forward to 2001, I met a wonderful gentleman who was LGBTQ, but also a great ally and supporter of the disability community. Fast forward seven years later to 2008, 15 years ago, I changed my vote. I voted no on Proposition 8. We're talking with Chris Perry and Sandy Steer, plaintiffs and Perry v. Schwarzenegger, which challenged the legality, the constitutionality of Proposition 8. And we're also talking with Scott Schaefer, senior editor for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk, co-host of Political Breakdown. And you, our listeners, can join the conversation at 866-733-6786 at our email address, forum at kqed.org. You can post on Instagram or on our digital community on Discord or other social channels at KQED Forum. What do you remember about the passage of Prop 8? How has the right to gay marriage affected you or your family? What parallels do you see between the Prop 8 campaign and today's anti-LGBTQ rhetoric? Scott, I want to talk with you a little bit about the arguments that defenders of Prop 8 were making at trial. And in fact, I want to play a clip of attorney Charles Cooper, um, who was basically the key, the main attorney arguing in favor of keeping Prop 8 during Perry v. Schwarzenegger. While the people of California have been steadfast in their support for the traditional definition of marriage, they have also been generous Your Honor, in extending rights, benefits, and protections to the state's gay and lesbian population. So talk a little bit about what he's trying to say here and what the broader argument was. Yeah, it's like, why do you need marriage? You've got civil unions. You've got all these rights. Uh, But in fact, um, you know, there are many rights, federal rights, that uh, were not uh, given to uh, same-sex couples uh, in spite of, you know, having this opportunity to register as domestic partners. You know, there are dozens and dozens, scores of rights, um, including Social Security, inheritance when a a spouse dies, that kind of thing, um, that most people take for granted. If you're a heterosexual couple, you don't even think about it. It's just a, you know, a a right that you're granted automatically when you get married. And so I think they were trying to say, look, you know, this isn't necessary. We're already providing all these benefits and all these rights, and we really need to keep this institution of marriage separate just for one man and one woman. And Sandy, what was it like to be in the courtroom hearing Cooper say things like that? Well, we we knew that, in fact, our rights were not protected at, at nearly the same level as a heterosexual couple. Um, but even beyond the, the, the rights that we did not have the pleasure of enjoying, just the notion that something that is so desirable to much of the country, people talk about their weddings and their marriages, and, and it's something parents are very proud of their children when they when they get married. This this thing that has an intangible benefit of a, a social inclusion is a really important aspect as well. So we felt like certainly we deserved the legal rights that are associated with marriage, but also we deserved the social right, the social um, contract that marriage provides, which is a, a, a sense of security and maybe even achievement within a couple and acceptance in our society in many, many ways and also part of the family construct that we have hoped to be a part of as well. We heard a little bit of Chris's testimony at trial. I want to play a little bit of yours, and this is you responding to Ted Olson asking what marriage means to you. It's just, to me, it's it's the way we tell them and each other that this is a lifetime commitment. We're, it's not, we're not girlfriends. We're not partners we're, we're married we're, we're we want I want to have a spouse it's it just is it's so different for domestic partnership and so much of what you're saying is 
is reflected there. Did you feel the sense of just in your everyday interactions with people that to be able to say married afforded something very different than a domestic partnership. No, it, it certainly does. In my mind, it did then and it, and it does now. Um, uh, the marriage commitment uh, is a lifelong commitment. It's it's understood by everybody in our society um, as what it is. Um, not the benefits uh, uh, you know, that that come with marriage, but also the commitment between a, a, a you know, two people um, and what it means to a family. And you know, and I feel like you know we we celebrate marriages. We have big parties. We have anniversaries that are very important to us. Domestic partnerships always seem a little bit more like a legal uh, administrative transaction. They're not as celebrated um, and and enjoyed in the same way that marriage is. So they're very different. Yeah, you know, my, my partner and I got married after it was struck down. And it, it t- took a little getting used to saying husband. <laughs> you know, I was like, didn't quite feel right. But when you say, this is my husband, that's all you need to say. Or, this is my wife. Mm-hmm. People know what that means. As opposed to saying, oh, this is my partner or my significant other. And they're like, well, are you business partners, you know, so it, it, it just provides a finality, a kind of clear uh, delineation of what the relationship is. Yeah. I was also moved, Chris, by how you responded to that question from Ted Olson about what marriage means to you. And uh, I want to play a little bit of that. What does the institution of marriage mean to you? Why do you want that? Well, I really never let myself want it until now. Growing up as a lesbian, you you don't let yourself want it because everyone tells you you're never going to have it. So in some ways, it's hard for me to grasp what it would even mean. How do you feel hearing that? Uh, Protective of that person um, saying that out loud. Um, And also very relieved and happy it's been this many years that we've we've mitigated this damage that was done to Californians of of having to keep feeling this second class citizen status of not being equal and having the the law the government tell you you can't have something other people can have it also reminds me of the the sort of the humiliation of of being a, a fully fledged adult with a big career and a family and going to work and everyone knows you can't have something they have. Um, it was, it, it was humiliating to me. I think it was also hard on our children, hard on our parents, hard on our friends. And so when I hear that, I'm just so relieved that, that those days are over and we're in a new place. Those days are over. Proposition 8 was ruled unconstitutional on August 4th, 2010 by U.S. District Court Judge Von Walker who ruled that it violated both the due process and equal protection clauses of the U.S. Constitution. And Judge Von Walker joins us now. Judge Walker, welcome to Forum. Hello, Nina. How are you? <laughs> I'm well. It's great to have you on. And and just as we're reflecting so much on Proposition 8, I, I do want to ask you how you reflect on the role that your ruling played in setting the course of history, essentially setting the course for the legalization of gay marriage in California in 2013 and, and ultimately even the U.S. in 2015, which it's been credited with. Well, looking back at Proposition 8 from the perspective of 15 years and the present uh, circumstances that we live in, the controversy surrounding same-sex marriage looks uh, rather quaint, if if I can say that, hmm. 
because we live in a world now where we have two wars going on, the Israeli-Hamas war, we have the Ukraine-Russia war going on, we have uh, an outbreak of violence and protests associated with uh, these controversies. And um, by comparison, uh, Proposition 8 and the issue of same-sex marriage was one that could be litigated in a courtroom and ultimately resolved in a courtroom. The present controversies that plague us uh, are not as likely to be resolved in a courtroom and not suitable to that kind of a resolution. So by comparison, uh, Proposition 8 and the controversy around same-sex marriage, I don't want to say it looks trivial, but it looks quaint by comparison with our present controversies. Of course, we always worry about what's before us now. But uh, uh, Proposition 8 was suitable to some kind of a judicial resolution. Mm. These other controversies are not. Perhaps relative to those other controversies, but there is a lot of concern that a lot of the views express the momentum and feeling behind Proposition 8 and its passage in California as having a resurgence. Do you feel that way, Judge Walker? You know, these issues are never completely settled. Uh, I grew up as a young man reading about the Scopes trial in Dayton, Tennessee in the 1920s and the controversy over the teaching of evolution in the public schools. And yet, uh, although that issue was decided uh, ultimately through a variety of means, that controversy and controversies related to it keep bubbling up. And the same way, the kind of social issues that uh, Proposition 8 implicated do keep bubbling up in different contexts. So we never live in a world that's completely settled. And this issue isn't completely settled, although I don't think we're going to be turning the clock back to the days when marriage is limited solely to people of opposite sex. Judge Walker, can I ask you why you wanted to have a full trial with witnesses and testimony, as opposed to having both sides submit briefs, which is what the plaintiffs thought could happen? You also wanted it to be taped, videotaped, even televised. Why did you want a full trial? There are two reasons. Number one, this was a live uh, controversy, and it was one that uh, people can understand and related to quite easily. And so I thought a public trial that would bring out these issues and play them in a courtroom would clear the air. Secondly, whatever decision was made after a trial has a legitimacy that uh, the ruling of a judge solely on the basis of briefs and argument uh, lacks. And I thought uh, this was an issue, if not completely settled for all time, nevertheless would benefit by the airing of these issues in a courtroom. And that, I think, is what happened. For you personally, what was it like to hear the testimony on the bench from Chris and Sandy, from Paul and, and Jeff? 
Well, of course, they were excellent witnesses. And as they've referred to, they had excellent lawyers who prepared them extremely well. And uh, they made very compelling presentations. In 2011, you publicly came out as gay. This drew anger from some supporters of Prop 8 who claimed judicial bias. They wanted to appeal your ruling. How, how do you respond to that? Well, you know, the issue never uh, was one that particularly uh, bothered me at the time of the trial itself. It was pretty well known, at least among my colleagues and uh, I mean, publicly, what my orientation was. There was, a, there was some pub- publicity about that. And I never felt compelled to make a public declaration. And in fact, I thought it would be somewhat upsetting to, to do that. Uh, it would draw attention to the judge rather than to the issue itself. Mm. As it turned out, uh, afterwards, the issue came up. Uh, the plaintiffs were quite aware of my orientation. I'm sorry, the the proponents of Proposition 8 were quite aware of my orientation. They were asked about it by at least one newspaper reporter, as reported in the Chronicle. So I thought after that, there wasn't any reason to uh, pick at that scab and to raise it myself. But uh, after the case was lost, then they raised it. And it's never a good idea to try to recuse the judge after you've lost the case. But the notion that you would be biased simply because of that? That was the notion, exactly. <laughs> um, but, you know, in, in fact, part of the problem that I think the proponents of proposition had in the case is they essentially staked their case on this notion that marriage was inextricably intertwined with, the, with procreation, mm. which is a um, shaky ground or uh, opposite-sex marriage, because there are a lot of people who are very happily married who don't procreate, and there are quite a number of people who no longer procreate. They may have once procreated, but they don't do so anymore, and they remain happily married. So you don't have to procreate to be happily married. And yet that was the theme of the proponent's uh, argument in court. Uh, They would have done much better if they had followed the lead of the folks in the abortion cases and said that this is a intensely personal and uh, state-oriented issue and should be confined to the processes of the various state constitutional systems. If they'd made that argument in a compelling kind of a way, it would have been a not much tougher case to decide. Well, Judge Von Walker, really appreciate hearing your reflections 15 years to the month of the passage of of Prop 8. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Nina. All the best. Judge Von Walker, retired U.S. District Judge who presided over Perry v. Schwarzenegger, which later became Hollingsworth v. Perry, but it is the case that found California's Proposition 8 to be unconstitutional. I'm also with Scott Schaefer, Senior Editor for KQED's Politics and Government Desk, and with Chris Perry and Sandy Steer, Plaintiffs in the Case. And I am also with you, our listeners. Let me go to Jack in San Francisco. Jack, you're on. Hey there. Uh, 
I'm Jack. I, I live in uh, the Castro in San Francisco. So I was going to UCLA during this whole time, and I was really involved in the No on Hate campaign. And I remember very distinctly um, walking around with a poster, um, the the No on Prop 8 poster around the campus for many months. Um, and it was difficult back then. It was difficult to be visible as a gay man. And I remember the night when Obama won and Prop 8 passed, being broken, sitting in this hallway, um, crying. Mm. And I remember distinctly thinking, because it was the same year the Californians passed protections for chickens being caged, um, that Californians care more about chickens than they do about me and my future and being a human being. And the passing of Proposition 8 really broke me for a very long time. And I didn't understand this until many years later. Um, I'm going to be very involved in the passage, um, getting, you know, marriage written into the Constitution and overturning Proposition 8 for good. So if the Supreme Mm. Court ever does um, overturn marriage nationally, um, which it probably will, um, we will be protected here in California, which will at least be something. But I encourage everyone to get involved. I was just at the, the vigil for Harvey Milk in the Castro last night, and Cleve Jones said, do not take anything for granted because it could all be taken away very, very quickly. Hmm. So don't take this for granted. Anybody out there, we got to rally. we got to make this happen. Jack, thanks for bringing that up and also for sharing your earlier reflections. We're coming up on a break, Scott, but do you mind just explaining what Jack is talking about here with regard to the state constitution and the Prop 8 language? Yeah, so when Prop 8 passed, it became, it was a constitutional amendment. And even though it was struck down, the language technically is still in the constitution. And so Evan Lowe, assemblyman from the South Bay, put... Um, rallied his uh, mem- the members of the legislature to put it on the ballot for November uh, to basically s- remove that language officially and replace it with language about everyone having the right to marry as part of the pursuit of happiness. And so that's what will be on the ballot in November. And uh, they're hoping to get not just a, you know, 55-45 yes vote, but like a 70% yes, um, because, you know, they want to make, make a statement about how attitudes about same-sex marriage have changed. We'll have more reflecting on the passage of Prop 8 after the break. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're hearing your memories and reflections on the 15th anniversary of Prop 8, what you remember from its campaign and passage back in 2008 and how you feel about it. Today, we're remembering with Chris Perry and Sandy Steer, plaintiffs in Perry v. Schwarzenegger, which ultimately overturned Prop 8. It found California's Prop 8 to be unconstitutional. We're also talking with Scott Schaefer, senior editor for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk. And we're talking with a Scott in Sonoma County. Scott, you're on the line. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I wanted to first just say thank you for creating this space and time to have this discussion and uh, bring some awareness to the issue. Uh, I'm a gay man. Um, Met my husband when I was 21 years old in Sonoma County. He had just gotten out of the military. And uh, so we just celebrated 21 years together this this month. And um, at one point, we thought, you know, we were citizens of this country, and we deserved the same rights. He had served in the Army and, and now was a critical care nurse, taking care of people, saving lives. And why didn't we deserve the same you know, protections as citizens and the same rights as citizens? And so we started to think about how we could be seen, and that for us looked like, you know, um, being, um, you know, you know, being down somewhere instead of kind of being closeted like, having our names down somewhere. And so marriage was the way we could do that. Yeah. And so when Newsom um, allowed marriage to take place in San Francisco, we signed up. And mm, unfortunately, it got shut down before. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, it got uh, shut down before our names came up because there was such a backlog. Mm. Mm. So we ended up um, going to Hawaii and doing reciprocal beneficiary. And... Um, again, just to get our names on record and to try to be part of this, what we saw as a long-term battle for same-sex marriage. Wow. And then in 2008, um, you know, something happened in the middle of an afternoon in June, and I called my husband and said, they've just overturned this, and we can get married today. Uh, can you leave the hospital and meet me in Santa Rosa at the county office? And so on June Uh, 18th of 2008, we were married at Sonoma County. And so I think that was just before uh, Obama's election and and the no on eight. And so, you know, it really is kind of like we've been along for this whole process all along. And I just have so much gratitude to the parties who represented us (laughs) and um, got us where we are today happily married as uh, two men, something like like uh, your speaker said mentioned before, was basically unimaginable for either of us until then. Yeah. Well, Scott, thank you for reflecting that roller coaster and also such such a kind reflection. I actually want to bring KQD's engagement producer, Carlos Cabrera Lomeli, into the conversation. Um, Carlos, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, Mina. Good, hey, great to be here. Hey, you know, how old were you, Carlos, when Prop 8 passed? Oh, Mina. Okay. I was <laughs> 10, 11, I think. And so back in 2008, I was starting middle school right here in San Francisco. And I would see pamphlets and posters in support and against Prop 8 um, all the time, everywhere. And when I learned what it was, I was, I mean, girl, I was so at that time, so confused about my identity, about my orientation. I was, you know, I was becoming who I was going to be a young queer person but seeing such explicit messages against gay marriage, against queer people in ads where queer people were made to be seen as explicit threats to children, to families, I internalized that 
as a young person, and it made it harder for me later on to accept who I am. Yeah. This listener, Tim, writes, I remember a sign in a vacant lot along the side of a rural road. Yes, on Prop 8. Do it for the children. I was furious. Later, after Prop 8 passed, a left-leaning co-worker proudly told me that as a family man, he was happy to have voted yes on Prop 8, but I told him no one's civil rights should ever be put to a popular vote. I do want to play just a little bit of sort sort of the key message, the main ad for proponents of Prop 8 that, that the campaign put out, essentially talking about the need to, to make sure that children are protected from a certain kind of instruction in schools. Let's hear a little bit of that. Mom, guess what I learned in school today? What, sweetie? I learned how a prince married a prince, and I can marry a princess. Think it can happen? It's already happened. When Massachusetts legalized gay marriage, schools began teaching second graders that boys can marry boys. The courts ruled parents had no right to object. Under California law, public schools instruct kids about marriage. Teaching children about gay marriage will happen here unless we pass Proposition 8. Yes on 8. So, Carlos, I invited you on not just because I wanted to hear your reflections as a young person, but also because you combed through hours of tape once KQD was able it led an effort to try to get the videotapes unsealed. And so you ended up coming through a lot of it and creating a video project where you looked at footage of Chris and Sandy, who are sitting with me in studio today, but also with the gay couple from Southern California, Paul Katami and Jeff Zarillo. And if I could, I want to play what you pulled, which was Paul Katami reacting to ads like this. Here's his testimony during the trial. Protect the children is a big part of the campaign. And when I think of protecting your children, you protect them from people who perpetrate crimes against them, people who might get them hooked on a drug, a pedophile, or some person that you need protecting from. You don't protect yourself from an amicable person or a good person. You protect yourself from things that can harm you physically, emotionally. And so insulting, even the insinuation that I would be part of that category. So, Carlos, there, there is that that really stood out to you. But there is this part of me that wonders: for a generation of folks who, as adults, have always had this right now to marriage. When you talk with you know millennials and Gen Z, what do they say about it? Like, what do they think about it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think, I think how you put it, it's, it, it, it's, it's a really w- smart way to put it, Amina, that we grew up with it, and it feels like it can't be taken away. It feels like it's just there. It's granted, and it's not something. The, the battle, the years and years of trials of people get of people putting themselves out there of protest, it, it doesn't. I feel like that weight isn't translated over. To be like, wow, we can get married now. Like it, and the people who fought for it are still here, right with us. It wasn't last century. It wasn't in the 1800s. It was right. It was just 15 years ago, and that's what really motivated me to go through the hours and hours of trial footage. And w- speaking to Scott, when I saw what really jumped out at me through these trial footages were Chris and Sandy, Paul and Jeff speak so passionately so courageously, not just about the rights they they knew they deserved, but also about the per, the, peop, the, the people they loved. And to me, 
if you watch these trial tapes, yes, it's fascinating, the legal discourse, the lawyers going back and forth, but it's also two love stories, two love stories that, you know, their love is so strong that went all the way to the highest court in the land. And that, to me, felt like such a relevant story for 2023 and for younger generations to know. Yeah, it's interesting. I hear a lot of folks who say, who are really kind of down on marriage, like they don't really want to get married, even though the right exists. But I guess there's a part of me that's like, wow, how great that it's like, so, so uh, possible that you don't even really care <laughs> one way or the other, whether or not you want to participate. Well, there, you know, there were a lot of uh, gay folks in the 70s and, you know, 60s, 70s, even the 80s, who thought that get the idea of gay couples getting married was heteronormative. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't want, yeah. why do we want to be in that club? Yeah. You know, we're gay, we're, we have our own thing. And there was a lot of resistance to it. I think even you know, as the as the you know marriage equality movement went forward, and you know, God bless. Yeah, you know, it's it's not you don't have to get married. <laughs> it's just you know you want to have equal rights. You want to have the equal opportunity if that's what you want. It's not saying it's better or worse, but if you want to, you know, now you can. Yeah, Michael. I, yeah, go yeah. ahead. Well, just real quick, I, you know, what to Carlos's point about it's you know it's settled now. It is and it isn't because you know we've seen this Supreme Court whittling away at some of those rights. Just the last session, there was a case involving a, a marriage, a wedding website designer who didn't want to design for gay couples. Yes. Supreme Court ruled on their behalf. Um, and previously, there was the cake baker, you know, in in Colorado, same idea. So this idea of religious freedom, First Amendment rights, bumping up against this fundamental right to get married. And I'm thinking there's going to be more cases like that, you know, coming down the the pipeline, especially with the current makeup of the court. Let me go to caller Sid. Hey, Sid, you're on. Hi, uh, my name is Sid, and I wanted to say that, first of all, we're standing on the shoulders of all the people that fought for it really hard in the 80s since Harvey Milk and everything. So thanks. Thank you. And shout out to them. Um, The other thing is that um, just like... um, uh, he just said that it's the equal opportunities and the rights. Um, I am married um, to my husband, and we own a house in San Francisco. My neighbor is a, um, a, a retired muni driver. I had conversation with him, and he is now a bishop at a church, and he said that he's against gay marriage. And I told him that, look, if uh, as when we were single, two single men living in this house, the um, assessor of San Francisco City Hall, um, um, told us that if one of us passes away, the house will re- be reassessed, and um, what you bought for $500,000, it'll be 20 years from now, 30 years from now, two, $3 million, and at that point, you'll be retired, not making any money, and you'll have to pay like $60,000 property tax on it, which you won't be able to afford and perhaps be homeless. Um, mm. You'll be forced to sell. So those are the rights that you need to have as a married couple. If um, one of you is in coma to pull the plug, you have that right as, as your partner, your social security. He is muni driver, retired muni driver. His wife worked for UCSF, and she passed away, unfortunately, because of cancer. But he gets um, her social mm. security, her pension, and um, his house he bought. 30 years ago, still pays very low property tax. And all of those benefits he enjoys as a straight man because he gets all those rights because of the marriage. And this is the kind of uh, communication we need to have with the people who are against gay marriage because that's the only way they can understand. It isn't about Bible. It isn't about Judaism or Islam or Hindu or any other religion, even atheist. Um, This is all about the laws. 
I appreciate it hearing how you are in dialogue with your neighbor. It's very important. Michael writes to withhold a right from one group that is guaranteed to another is wrong. So this was a simple matter of civil rights. It also has been my belief that when there is love involved, that should be the end of the story. No more needs to be said. Another listener writes, my wife and I were married in 2013. In 2014, my wife got cancer. Just as Scott mentioned, it was weird to use the word wife, but that word became very powerful when my wife was in the hospital. Being able to visit her and communicate with the doctors and say, I'm her wife, was an amazing thing. And it opened many doors, which would not have opened with the words girlfriend or partner. Let me remind listeners, you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Interestingly, Chris and Sandy, you were also both married in 2013, and you're celebrating your 10-year anniversary. And I think, Sandy, you've described this 10-year anniversary as cause for celebration and reflection. But what are you reflecting on? Because it sounds like you are also concerned about maybe the trend of the rest of the country. Yeah, well, I certainly reflect on the joy of, of being legally married for 10 years, but also um, the committed relationship we've had for so much longer. It's, you know, well over 20 years. Um, so our legal marriage part is actually a minority of our overall relationship. Um, but as Scott mentioned, I, I, I agree. I, I don't I don't feel entirely confident that we will um, enjoy as a country this right um, through the rest of our lives, even as we've, you know, we've seen the court overturn very basic fundamental rights. And we were in Washington, D.C. right after Roe was overturned and devastated by that ruling and knowing um, as women how terrible, how terrible the impact would be on women throughout this country. And so we don't take our rights for granted. I, I think that as a person who grew up in the era of Roe, I took that right for granted, as did my, my friends um, and, and family. And, you know, we've, we've seen that go away. And, um, you know, we had a great ruling for us at the court in 2013. And yet we don't know what the future holds. What we do know is that there are people out there filing lawsuits all the time. And any one of them, it could be filed that makes its way to the Supreme Court in, in a number of years. Um, so it's it's no time for complacency. And Scott, we have a new Speaker of the House, Louisiana's Mike Johnson, and you've wanted to make sure people are aware of statements he has made related to... Well, not just statements. I mean, he was for many years the attorney for the Alliance Defending Freedom, a Christian uh, legal firm. Uh, They were involved in both of those cases I just mentioned, the the cake baker and the wedding website. Uh, He doesn't work for them anymore. But, you know, in the past, he's talked about the need for things like Proposition 8 as being the only uh, guard against, you know, what he called uh, activist judges. Um, he had some very dark words about what gay marriage meant. Uh, he called it, you know, leading to anarchy. Um, and, you know, I think that was what all these things were put on trial with Prop 8. And there were witnesses and cross-examination and testimony. And they looked at these questions of, you know, how are children affected when their parents can or can't get married? What is the history of marriage? Is it completely uh, new, a new idea? Or is there are there cases in history where same-sex couples have actually been together? Maybe they didn't call it marriage. Uh, and so all these ideas were put on tape. And that was one of the reasons it's so important to have these trial tapes made public, because people need to see this. It's very rare for a landmark civil rights case to have, to have been videotaped. Uh, and so now it can be used in law schools. It can be used in other ways 
to show how were these arguments defended, how were they struck down, and uh, it's the kind of thing that will live in perpetuity on websites, and people can watch it anytime they want or look at clips. I remember there was some testimony from a young man from Colorado who was made to go through by his parents uh, conversion therapy. Horrible, horrible story, gut-wrenching. His parents told him that they would have, uh, if they had known he'd be gay, they would have gotten an abortion. Um, and so all these kind of notions and gay and lesbian you know, tropes, anti-gay tropes, were there in the courtroom for those that two-week trial. And if anybody wants to look at how, you know, that was all sorted out, you know, it's there for them to see now. Carlos, you've pointed to parallels between Prop 8 rhetoric and today's transphobic rhetoric. You've also been hearing and pulling tape of ads and things that sound remarkably similar to the ads that played during Proposition 8. Tell us a little bit about that. Absolutely. Uh, Mina, like the playbook is exactly the same from what we saw in 2008 to what we're seeing right now in 2023 for a lot of the anti-trans legislation. Uh, a lot of the arguments for the anti-trans legislation we saw in Tennessee, what we see in Texas is always protect the children. Children are in danger. And it's especially dangerous when you see this messaging being uh, being repeated by pre- presidential candidates, by the Speaker of the House. And that's why, you know, Scott mentioned what the tapes, having the tapes publicly available, the benefits that the, that, 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 that that can bring. And I also think that another reason or another benefit is that the same way that these the arguments in favor of Prop 8 are being recycled just justify anti-trans legislation, I think the arguments that brought down Prop 8 must also be heard in 2023, especially taking into account that who's leading the fight now against anti-trans legislation are a lot of young queer people. They're young, like in in, tw- in early 20s, even teens, a lot of young trans activists are, un- are 17, 18, 19. And they may- were not alive in 2008. So, I mean, they may not have been alive or just, you know, had been very, very young, excuse me. And knowing that's, uh, that older generations took on these same exact arguments and brought them down, I think brings everything into full circle and provides this sort of intergenerational dialogue that is really powerful to see in movements. Hmm. Well, you can watch the videos produced by Carlos with Chris and Sandy and Paul Katami and Jeff Cirillo on KQD's webpage and the show page for this segment. Chris, we just have 20 seconds, but I asked Sandy what it's been like. 10 years of marriage. Congratulations. What do you reflect on after 10 years of marriage? I can't imagine that my life would have had this much meaning or feel this secure or be this um, connected than uh, I do now. And it's very much because of my marriage to Sandy. Chris, Sandy, thank you both. Thank you. Scott, thank you. Thank you, Mina. And thanks, Carlos, as well. Thank you, Mina. Thank you, listeners, for sharing your reflections. Thank you, Caroline Smith, for producing today's segment. You have been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.